along. And we're very excited to have what I hope will be a frank and slightly controversial discussion today. Um, we're holding the event because we are about three quarters of the way through our um, mobile. Really, want it's rare for us to directly implement a project ourselves. And Kelly on the panel here has been implementing this project in Kenya. Um, for about the last 20 months. Um, so we are in a position where we can start to reflect on how things are going and um, the program finishes in September. And we've got some interesting findings we wanted to share. And so we also wanted to invite other colleagues who've been working on similar things to see if they were the same or to see what differed and why and start to get to the bottom of that. We've also invited um, our DS software provider from SMS to join us. And then we're very lucky we have. Um, a panel from USAID to reflect on, on and offer some, some reflections and some thoughts based sharing. So, and of course, many of you in the room are also very knowledgeable and experienced, and we look forward to hearing as well. So, um, just so you know who I am, by the way, I'm Laura McDonald, and I'm the CEO of that. But, but today I am your faithful moderator. So, um, I'm going to introduce Kelly, first of all, who is our um, credit program director. She's the person who's running this program in Kenya for us and um, joined us from a variety of places, an interesting background working on a variety of, of startups of various types in Kenya and in uh, San Francisco. And um, Kelly, why don't you start by telling us about the program? Sure, I've been fortunate enough to be on this project from the inception. Um, and I can say that it's a project that has changed quite a lot, um, kind of every couple of months. Every couple of months we'll find out something a little bit new or realize that a Something that a one organization maybe had complained about was now something that we've realized many of the organizations are having troubles with. So it's been a process of um, really understanding kind of the some of the limitations of technology and understanding where the human the human element um, is very important and like the amount of kind of motivation that um, some of the organizations themselves need in order to. Uh, make a transition from cash to mobile payment. Initially, this project was funded by DFID, um because we saw that there was a, a gap in the services available, which meaning uh, M-Pesa, um, and the types of organizations that were able to that, that were using M-Pesa um, in Kenya, where 90% of households actually have access to M-Pesa, um, but we still see that most of the transactions are person-to-person uh, -person transactions or their airtime top-ups or internet internet top-ups. Um, I know that that's the reason I initially got M-Pesa. And so we we kind of fathomed that if we could create, um, working with Frontline, if we could create a tool that was um, taking the context of the organization, really taking the context of the organizations um, at heart and understanding that they probably don't have access to internet, um, or that you know um, they might not be the most computer literate users. They're not working off of Macs. Um, so we thought if we can make this tool, then the problem will be solved. Uh, these organizations are going to suddenly take up mobile money, and uh, and they'll be able to reap the benefits that everyone's heard of M-Pesa um, being able to, you know, um, reduction in fraud, uh, cost and time savings. Um, increase in membership and, and profit and all of these things. Um, and what we found is that there's a lot more to it. Um, it's not just about the tool. Um, so kind of some of our major learnings were uh, centered around um, human interaction um, as well as or at, like at the organizational level and then 
kind of at a broader point, uh, taking into consideration the broader context and environment in which the organizations are working. Looking at the uh, individual, like human level, um, some of what we what we started to find out from the get go was that um, when we were delivering this this tool and training um, organizations and, and individual users on the tool. Uh, it was very difficult um, for them to suddenly adopt it, um, and we needed to find out what it was that would drive that individual user, what their motivation was. Um, and if you're like going into an organization that's maybe a SACO or an NGO um, and, and out in a rural area, the administrator of the organization is probably not interested in his company making more money. Um, that, how is that going to actually benefit him? So what we really tried to tried to figure out, and it's just something that took time, was um, you know what is what is their personal motivation. So with um, we were talking with one SACO, and the bookkeeper there had complained that his afternoons were completely inefficient, um, a total waste of time, because he constantly had uh, customers coming in asking what their balance was, and these are simple things that. Um, Really, you know, it was it was constant, and it took away from what he was able to accomplish during the day. So, with that particular organization, we were able to uh, to to help him use the technology to set up a, a simple interaction where all of his customers would be able to get an automatic text message, um, letting them know about their balance. So, once we were able to really work with the organizations um, and understand their individual motivations, then we were starting to see a lot more success. Um, and then kind of at the, um, at the organizational level, we came across things like very highly centralized um, policies where the people, we were the, the, yeah, the people we were working with didn't actually even have the power to, um, to change the, the, the process. Um, and so with a lot of the organizations, it was, talk it was like walking through their, um, their processes, seeing where we could um, make mobile money, um, well, where we could, I guess, decentralize the financial processes to uh, make it easier to pilot projects. Um, another another kind of thing that we observed was that, um, and, and actually I think most organizations do this, if you introduce, introduce a new tool, you want to go 150% at it. You, it's, it's kind of inundating to be um, using two systems at the same time. We've noticed this with Slack and email, like we end up kind of duplicating all of our efforts. Um, and yet, like the duplication is kind of necessary when you're piloting a project. Um, and so a lot of the work that we put in was um, kind of lowering the expectations of organizations to better understand um, where mobile money should be used and where possibly they should continue using cash. Um, and yeah, so those are those are kind of some of the major major takeaways. Um, there's we actually just released our case study today, um, and there's quite a lot more listed in there. So I'd encourage you guys all to to check that out. Um, but then I guess some of the just a couple of major successes that we've had in the last 20 months. Uh, um, some of them are related directly to mobile money, and some of them are things that we not, could not have really foreseen. Um, so, for instance, with one organization, um, one of the initial steps of starting to use mobile money is, of course, uh, transferring contacts from a written analog uh, messy notebook into 
as CSV so that we can get them into the frontline system. And in this um, in this process, we were working with Stadili, which is a um, small nonprofit. And I got a call from the uh, the executive director, and she and we were, well, we were talking, and I was saying, okay, how's the you know how are the transactions going? Are you starting to receive money on on your pay bill? Um, are you sending out text messages? And she's like, no, 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 we're not, we're, no, we're not doing any of that. But we love it. I'm like, well, what are you loving? What are you, what are you doing? Um, and it was that they simply had all of their contracts in digital form, and they were able to really, really quickly see that um, out of the 127 monthly members, only 23 of those monthly members were had paid in the last month, and that's something that they had no idea about, or at least she had no idea about. Um, so for them, it was simply like. We can we can get these contacts in a digital form, and 20 steps later, maybe we'll consider mobile money. Um, but like I, I think that that's a, um, a lot of value in, in things that you don't think might be significant. Fascinating. Yeah. And so it seems like um, what we were finding was that, and when we talked about this, Kelly, we've been trying to sort of look at this. What we usually end up doing is working with partners to help them to implement. That we're sort of the people who are thinking about the technology, and we. Actually, this is kind of an unprecedented level of access to the end experiences. We don't usually have this level of relationship with the people who are using whatever technology is that we're recommending. And so we're always kind of wondering what's happening. Well, here we have the opportunity to ask. And what we were theorizing in the end was that um, we were even looking at, I don't know if you looked at um, BJ Fogg's kind of theory of, um, of when um, advertising works, it's when you have that trigger, but also you have to have the ability to access it and you have to have the motivation. And what we were finding was that these, not only at the organizational level, but then at the end user level, in some cases, the ability was missing. So end users were saying, the your organization was saying to you, no, our end users just aren't here yet. They just can't use, they don't want to use money. I thought that the loans example, um, which maybe you can tell us about in a second, is a really interesting one. Um, or then the motivation wasn't there because um, organizations were kind of fine as they were, or, or end users were saying they were quite happy with the and what we were finding was interesting was where we were implementing at this very last mile level, we were encountering all these difficulties that turned up to 11 compared to what would happen in some of the organizations that have seen some of the change um, in, in other mobile money programs. As well. so the one I'm, yeah, so there's, well, this is kind of um, going into what I was saying about um, organizations are likely to want to do something 150%. 200% if they're going to start it out. So one of the SACOs um, said, okay, great. Well, we have, you know, we are, sorry, SACO is a savings and credit cooperative. Um, we have money coming in for loans. We have money coming in for savings, and we also disperse loans. Um, and originally they were doing this all in cash. Um, and then we brought them this tool and kind of, um, you know, see what, um, all what happened. And their initial thought was, We'll transition 100% of the payments. Um, we'll start sending out all of the loans with M-Pesa, and they got immediate immediate backlash from um, from their end users because that just wasn't people just weren't comfortable with it. These are people that already had M-Pesa, so that wasn't the issue. Um, they probably had the ability to get to a bank where they could deposit that float or that um, the, the value on their mobile wallet. Um, but it was more about the like the cultural aspect. Um, when you're going to take out a loan, 
it's probably because there's some sort of significant something happening in your life. Um, and that was something that they didn't want to suddenly give up. And um, yeah, they wanted to have some kind of physical something happen and sit with a human. Yeah, yeah. What, what, when you start sort of analyzing what happens with the introduction mm -hmm. of technology, there's always a bit at the end where you say, yes, and then human. And then at some point, your technology interacts with the real world and then chaos. And you never really know what's going to happen. And so the example of the um, Sadili where they were saying, well, we haven't actually used this is what you thought, it's been great, yeah. is, is an example. And I'm also quite struck by in these very rural areas where you encounter an economy that is probably largely informal and course introducing technology requires everybody to formalize something. Um, I want, Leah, I want to turn to you and ask um, how many of these experiences you recognize and how many you found are different. Um, so before you do that, I just want to introduce him to you. So Leo is the Senior Program Manager at the Grameen Foundation. Um, and he's been actually working in um, financial services inclusion for a long time. And for the last five years, starting at Card Bank in the Philippines, he's been working on digital cash. Um, and so uh, comes to us with a great deal of knowledge of how that market evolved over the last 10 years. So do tell us. Thanks. Um, I think it's interesting when we start uh, with the question of the human being introduced into the equation. Uh, and with Grameen Foundation, we've been working with it for, for almost 20 years. And we have put the human interaction really at the front of our development efforts at this time with human-centered design, user-centered design. So what that means for us is that we try to take all of our prototypes out in the field in the rural areas because you're exactly right. How many times do we run into a situation where we think we have a great idea and then once it's being used, it's not, we, we need to make a lot of adjustments. So I think that's one of the things that, that um, is, is kind of a valuable insight for us that we've learned with uh, a lot of failures over the years. So uh, one that hopefully others can benefit from as well. But it struck me as well when we were talking about 90% of the folks in, in Kenya having access to mobile money. Uh, we just ran a, a small e-warehouse pilot. We were able to uh, we were able to run focus groups before and after this pilot. And one of the questions we asked was, how would you like to receive the proceeds of your sale of harvest? So e-warehouse, smallholder small farmers, excuse me. Even though so many people had M-Pesa and mobile money, the percentage of people that wanted to receive it that way is small. And the reason for that is that I, we think is that the poor, while they are willing to listen, they're willing to, to maybe try, when it comes to their real money, cash is king, and you really need to show me. Right? So we ran this small pilot. We were able to give uh, some of the proceeds to some of the folks that were willing to receive through M-Pesa payments, and then we asked the question again afterwards. The response, much higher. Why? Because they were able to see that, hey, it's within 24, 48 hours I got it in, in my M-Pesa account, and then I can walk over and get it when, when I have time to get it, rather than having to go to a central place moving over to the bank account and so on. So I think just having the cards, the accounts, isn't enough. You need to show them why and why it's important. And that's, I think, one major, um, one just, one major thing that struck out at me so far mm -hmm. in, in some of our discussions. Um, well, one thing that you mentioned as well is the organization and, and how process-oriented and, and so on. And we're introducing mobile money at this other different channel. And 
I just wanted to let you know about uh, a project that we, we just concluded in neighboring Uganda. It's called the Accelerator Project. And what we did there was it, it's kind of pretty simple. We're going to try to encourage um, transactions through mobile channels. And we're going to do that by introducing uh, mobile wallets to bank accounts and putting them together so people can move them across. We worked with Centenary Bank, the largest uh, uh, bank in terms of customers in Uganda. Pride uh, Microfinance, a, a large microfinance organization in Uganda, and then Airtel and MTN. And as you guys can imagine, four organizations, strong organizations, coming together in a common platform so that value can be exchanged across that platform. Many of you work in this environment, so you know that's pretty easy, right? No, not, so, <laughs> not, not so easy. And. Uh, the, the kind of uh, the kind of support that we needed to provide our financial institution partners included, of course, technical project management. It included uh, commercial modeling, so that what we were building meant that uh, this was something that was both viable for the organizations as well as affordable for the customers. We also had to work with them with, uh, regarding the go-to-market strategies, advertising, communications, operations. How do you reconcile all these accounts that you, not, that you didn't have before? Not only reconcile them, as well as fund them now. You're, you're funding both accounts for a number of different. So the, the, the idea that we're introducing a simple concept or you know, a, a simple goal of transferring it around is terribly complicated for organizations. They can grasp it easily to operationalize it. It's much, much, much more of a and so one of the things that I'm thinking and that we've encountered and wondered about before is this is extremely high touch work from the FMS point of view. Lots and lots of going back. I mean, um, Kelly, we were just before you were saying you're on the phone to some of these organizations every day um, at, at the outset. How does that scale realistically when we think about going beyond the organizations who find it easy to take up? What do you see as the Well, I, that's, that's a terrible that's Difficult question, and, and, and one that I'm so glad everybody is, is here to, to help contribute to that answer. Because I'm I'm happy to say that 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 project, accelerator project that I was just talking about, um, is is uh, attracting 10,000 new customers, active customers, not just signing up, because that was part of our focus. We know we needed to focus on activity, not just the number of people that you sign up. And it has a it has a success rate in terms of the transaction of 95%. So I'm thinking that that's that's a, that's fairly good results, right? And and it's on its way to really being much broader. Centenary, the largest partner in, in terms of the financial institution, hasn't officially launched. Uh, the product. So that's what we're getting with uh, that kind of, of, of product launch support. What's more exciting about that project for me, though, is that we built a platform that now Asako, uh, uh, other, or other NGOs, can worry about their side of the transaction, their system, plug it into a, a common platform that now is already connected to um, Airtel and MTN. And I think that's a model that, that hopefully, uh, you know, the, the barrier is, is a bit less. What's got me more, uh, that's a technical barrier. But what's got me more worried is exactly the operational, the changes in, in the organization itself, how they need to account all of these accounts. It's, it's, not a, it's not a small undertaking. So scaling, I, it, 
again, making it available doesn't necessarily mean that you'll get it. Well, we have an hour, so we should be able to sort that out. <laughs> um, I'm glad you mentioned platform. Um, very timely. So that's a lovely segue into our third speaker, Sean McDonald. Um, you can tell that he relishes the challenge. He's um, married to me, so that's a bit of a disclaimer. Um, but he's also the CEO of Frontline SMS, and um, Frontline SMS's payments platform is the one that we um, help them build and that we implemented with this project. So, um, and Sean's been has worked with Frontline for five years and been working at the intersection of technology, legal services, and politics development for ten years. Um, and what I think we haven't touched on yet is actually that the market stuff, the technology stuff, is not easy in this market either, and that we're dealing with a very fragmented, fractured uh, landscape. So it would be great to hear a bit about the product and also about those challenges. Yeah, um, I really appreciate the comments that were made earlier, particularly around driving adoption. And I think one of the things that's really unique to financial services in digital spaces that, that we don't talk a huge amount about is the relationship between the institution that provides the loan guarantee or the savings or the wallet and the technology platform, which sometimes they're the same company and sometimes they're not. But digitizing processes and digitizing commercial transactions, as Kelly found, is sometimes a completely separate value proposition from building a relationship with a company like Safaricom or a company like Standard Bank or whomever else. And so you, we have this kind of bundled set of assumptions in we're rolling out digital financial services as though it is something we've done before, where in fact we're introducing multiple trust relationships at the same time and we're doing it under the banner of better efficiency or higher quality of life or more security, but these aren't readily translatable values and nor are the relationships with the institutions things that we can always kind of guarantee or speak directly to. So one of the main values at Frontline, one of our, our key institutional sort of building philosophies, has always been that we want our users to have as many options as humanly possible when they, when they choose a technology provider or a mobile service provider, or in this case, a bank. So one of the things that has significantly slowed our growth over the years, strangely, uh, has been being very resolute about making sure that we have as many options to connect to mobile networks as possible. So for example, a long time ago, it would have been a lot easier for us to go to one text messaging aggregator and be their platform and drive their revenue and push for their, their growth. And we've had offers to do that over the years, but we've always refused to do that because we think that the open marketplace is an important value for our end user. That is an ethos that we are proud of, but it is extremely difficult to translate once you not only take mobile, mobile communication and SMS interaction, but you then add digital financial payments, and then you also add digital financial services providers. So like the example that you gave, where you have this really powerful institutional partnership is amazing, right? But the platform serves to drive the underlying commercial interests of like those very particular four institutions. So there's a development initiative, which is essentially building emerging market penetration for these four commercial institutions, which is really powerful and, and there are great gains to be made there. Uh, but it's also difficult, like if someone wants to use a different bank, for example, then that probably takes quite a lot of platform re-architecture and a whole different set of contract negotiations and that kind of thing. Um, so those are all the fun things. Those are the reasons why I have to be a lawyer or am a lawyer in running this business. Uh, 
So to speak to like the, I just like a really quick overview of what it takes to build a, a digital financial services platform. Try and make this really, really quick. I'm sorry. Uh, first, you need the communication layer. So you have to find the mobile, like someone who is able to digitally interact via mobile money. Now, in some markets, that means someone like M-Pesa that has special regulatory dispensation. Sometimes it means you're looking at standard charter who's exploring how to build financial service projection or an international organization like Visa. All of that relies on how well they've digitized. So you may, some of you may have read today that M-Pesa theoretically released an API, which they've been offering to do for four years. Uh, all of the press says that today is the day. The documentation is downloadable, but access to the API is not. Um, so we'll see. It's, it's a big hope. Sorry, an API is an application programming interface. What it means is it's how one technology system speaks to another technology system. It's what gives you inroads to infrastructure. One of the kind of like clever things that Frontline discovered long before I got there is that actually commercial accounts are very small API. So when you buy a SIM card, you're, you have access to voice, you have access to SMS, you may have access to data, you have an account. That small account gives you access to technology infrastructure. So if you're operating at small and medium-sized volume, you may not need to commercially negotiate with a mobile network operator. And if you build technology systems, that live on top of the SIM card, you actually have commercial access to basically every payment platform in the world simply by entering the system the same way a consumer or the same way a customer. That's like a that's a very technical, very nerdy explanation of that, but it is also incredibly powerful in terms of how it affects the way that you build these platforms. Because if you don't build them this way, then you have to engage in a commercial negotiation where you are sitting on the other side of the telecom, and the telecom is telling you what it costs, what your transaction limits are, what they're going to charge and tax your users for. So in some ways, going into a network the same way a customer does makes your platform a lot more user-centric because you're operating the way the market does. What I think you wanted me to say, <laughs> judging by your face, uh, which I know very well by now, uh, <laughs> there are a lot of kind of complexities to this. I will leave most of them at the door. The, the short answer is that building a globally accessible, affordable, and not completely contractually hamstrung payments platform is probably the most difficult system to architect in the world right now. There are a couple of big, big barriers. One is fragmentation. So when you're building for smartphones, right, you're pretty much looking at a, a very small number of operating systems. Operating systems are the environment that you build in. Android is by far the world's leader. They have more than 2 billion, uh, 2 billion installations, 2 billion mobile phones. The problem is that Android is also open source and for the most part, and is broken into like a million different pieces. So one part of Android is not the same as another part of Android, is not the same as another part of Android. So what that means is you're not actually building for one ecosystem, you're building for like a million ecosystems and they all have different permissions and they all do different things. That's fine. Let's assume for a minute that that's not a problem. You then have to build for compatibility with hardware markets. So. For those of you who've spent a fair amount of time abroad, 
you'll know that it's a lot easier to get a knockoff iPhone or a knockoff Android than it is to get the $40 smartphones that we're being sold are everywhere. Uh, and they are, they're in a lot of places, but it's just easier to get bootlegs. The problem with that is that they definitely don't ship the same hardware, which means that like even if you were to find, if you were to thread the needle to get the right operating version of the operating system, it may or may not work on the hardware in whatever market you find. And we thought, okay, that's probably just like a knockoff phone problem. As it turns out, even Samsung smartphones vary substantially in the chipsets that they ship from place to place or in the same place, as Kelly has found out <laughs> many times in Nairobi. Samsung S3 GT i9 300 is not the same everywhere. <laughs> There's like 18 different versions. I think there are like 18 letters in that version. Yeah. So, so software, tough, hardware, tough. And we haven't even gotten to the commercial service provider, right? We haven't even gotten to the bank yet or the mobile network operator. None of them have APIs except for maybe hopefully today. So far, I think Airtel might, or you'll know more about this than I will. Uh, <laughs> building into their infrastructure is, is a tough and uncertain world in most parts, uh, which is why the SIM card thing is important, but also why um, APIs and, and the work that a lot of the big policy and commercial standards groups are doing is very, very important. Um, so th that's, and like all of those are just, those are the things that happen before you get to designing the user experience, building out the commercial structure, AD testing in the field. We wandered into this thinking like, oh, we've been looking at mobile payments for a while. Surely that won't be that hard. And it's been exciting. <laughs> uh, we've, we've learned a lot. Uh, I am actually really excited to say that we are, in the next couple of weeks, releasing a new version of Frontline, which will include payments and can be adapted to a significant number of mobile payments infrastructures around the world, both in Kenya and, and abroad, uh, and includes access to, uh, we will be able to build and customize uh, connections to different commercial providers in the same market, like Airtel versus M-Pesa in Kenya, uh, and, and, and in other geographies as well. So we think that we managed to thread some small part of this, and we're sure that we'll learn and fail a lot more before we really get to, to the great success that we're sure is at the end of the tunnel. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it, it's tough. Um, it's tough, but I will say that the lessons that you all shared about really focusing on structured transactions and really checking your assumptions about which part <laughs> of the digitization process are, are valuable have been incredibly instructive to us. Thank you. Um, yeah, I actually was at a workshop this week um, where we were looking at a slightly different thing, which is getting content onto simple phones. Um, for the simple reason that it's a very attractive prospect to have the reach of the simple phone. You don't need the internet, you don't need the smartphone. But what you realize, and what I kept thinking last year as we were going through the net neutrality debate, is that it makes you really appreciate the very democratic structure of the internet and its protocols. And if you want to know what the internet would look like without that, look at the mobile network. Because almost every avenue you could choose has these kinds of blockers. Whether you're looking whether you go through the relationships with the with the providers and you negotiate and you have to work with their APIs. And then you have the very great pleasure of having produced a platform that is transferable and, and can be replicated elsewhere, but you still have to repeat that process. Or you choose to try to go around them, but then you reach these 
So, um, and that actually, this came up at the workshop as well, where there is no good API, going in looking like a normal consumer can be a kind of rickety API in and of itself. And you can do computer to computer connections to the network that way, albeit slightly outside the terms of service usually of, of whatever it is that you're using. But that's another strategy, but then you come up against hardware and the limitations of the network itself. So very interesting, um, very interesting thing to, to see the connections between those. Okay. I'm going to bring you in and ask you to make sense of this for us, and also to add, to add your thoughts. So, um, so Kay leads the Global Development Lab's um, Digital Finance Practice, um, and before this you were a political officer at the State Department, right, um, focused on Afghanistan and Iran. Um, and Afghanistan itself, I think, is quite an upwardly mobile, mobile money marketplace um, because it's where nothing works. It's in start, it's, but yeah. Um, so I'd love to, to, yeah, to ask you to, to reflect on what you've heard and also it'd be great to hear a little bit about what you guys see as the next sure. steps when we've got this far. Sure. I wonder if before I speak if it's worth um, asking you guys to just very clearly state why someone would want a platform rather than working directly with a provider. I think you all sort of hinted at different reasons, but, you know, especially in a country like Kenya, where there is actually a provider, you don't have as much fragmentation as you do in, you know, Uganda or Tanzania, where you have real market competition. So I think it'd be interesting just to explain to people why a, why a platform is necessary. And by a platform here, you mean an, an intermediary between the system exactly, and the middleware customer, mm -hmm. customer experiences yeah. and then the network operation itself. I mean, is that interesting to people? Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> As someone who builds a platform, I can, I can give it one shot and then be shot down. Um, I think that basically there's not a, there's not a good enough tool set, right? It's, it's just like the power of SMS significantly exceeds the tools that you're given on a phone to use SMS to its full capacity, the power of mobile money as a platform is significantly larger than the small window and set of tools that you're given on a, on a phone. And so I think that our, our perspective is that we can use a platform both to increase the value of mobile money and what you're able to do with it, and we can also use it as a way to connect to other platforms like the internet and like text messaging and like voice and using those as uh, com combining those powers to meet users with their needs um, and, and management, uh, yeah, and basically meet them where they are in a way that I think the tools provided by operators rarely do. And from a perspective? Yeah, um, just, yeah, on like a really lower level, um, I mean, if you're thinking of an NGO and they have 300 community uh, community health workers out in the field, and each of these community health workers needs uh, 100 shillings a week. To spend each of those 100 shillings on a phone is a painful process. Um, it's, they're likely to lose information. Um, it's hard to verify if payments have been sent and received. Um, and yeah, it's just the manual labor of it is is too complex. Um, and some some organizations have tried, and they do it for a little while. But uh, usually, then they start to abandon mobile money and say cash is easier. For us, going through that common platform route was really about trying to make sure that uh, some of the lessons and the processes that we go through with our larger partners is something that we can leverage for the smaller organizations. That there, there is 
something for them to to be able to plug into, at least from from that perspective that's already uh, at the back end uh, connected to the mobile money of uh, 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 more than one kind of MNO out there. So that that, that was. That was our thinking. Uh, one, one other benefit that we derive from it really comes from the idea of, of finding innovative products that would be useful to those, those that are poor. In having that common platform, what we can do is develop for that platform and make it useful for a number of SACOs, a number of MFIs, uh, a number of other NGOs, where that one use case that you just uh, you know described, sending out to 300 community workers out in the field, we can solve that problem once in this platform, we can apply it to a number of different uh, solutions. So that was why it was a trend. That's great. So I think you guys answered probably 90% of what I was looking for there. I think that was great. Um, <laughs> that's good. Um, so, you know, as, as USAID has been pushing our partners to really transition their own operations, and we see this institutionally very much as part of our commitment, our internal commitment to the Better Than Cash Alliance, um, because we know that uh, digital payment accounts are, are the fastest way to scale sustainable access to broader set of financial services. Taking that a step further, we know that financial services and financial inclusion has incredibly important benefits to the poor. And that's cross-sectoral, which is why this is something that's so important to USAID, because we find that um, that last-mile access to finance tends to be the great common denominator of you know development challenges. Whether you're talking about smallholders and trying to improve food security and, and household level, or education and trying to figure out how to incentivize and pay teachers efficiently, and how to route remittances directly into school accounts, or if you're talking about health, you know, it really it really doesn't matter. And so we find that the financial inclusion benefits are so well demonstrated and so compelling. And then as you start to layer on top of it in terms of the efficiency and the transparency that organizations, in particular governments, gain as they digitize their operations. Um, you know, this this really seems to us at this point just, just almost a no-brainer. And, you know, I love this conversation of like, and really evaluate you guys are doing because you are on the front lines, right, of um, where, the, where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, and talking about the operational challenges. But I always like to sort of frame these conversations um, in a really strong statement that, you know, make no mistake. I mean, everything they said is exactly right. And these things are very hard and we're in early days of, the, uh, of this digitization process. But, you know, this is where the world is heading. Like I, when I started working on what was then just called mobile money uh, five years ago, there were still a lot of my colleagues, a lot of people in the financial services industry that, you know, were treating this as sort of a gimmick, a, a tech trend that was a flash in the pan. I would say we're far, far beyond that now. And so what you're going to see is increasingly um, large institutions, whether we're talking about the development community or in the private sector, and certainly public sector institutions, continuing to um, to aggregate and come up with more demand for these services. Which brings me to the second point of why you need this sort of middleware and intermediation between the providers and the customers. And I think I'm going to be um, a lot less diplomatic than you guys were. And Wayne, I saw Wayne come in. Wayne always picks out my worst quote and then tweets it to like thousands of people. Yeah, exactly. 
But I mean, the, the truth is, and I think we all know this, like most mobile money products, most digital finance products are very poorly designed. They're not designed for the end user, much less an enterprise that needs a proper like business solution, like a Statco or you know a, even a big factory that's trying to do payroll. Um, and then you know you layer on top of that the fact that a lot of the providers, particularly those that are new to the financial services world, like the mobile network operators, which is most of the African model, is you know they are just so difficult to work with, right? <laughs> And we're talking about Kenya here, where actually you only have one entity to deal with. In most markets, if you try to think about bulk payments or some sort of financial solution for large population sets of people, you're actually working in markets where your, you know, your beneficiary set of, say, a thousand people may have SIM cards belonging to four or five different providers, each of whom own their own closed-loop proprietary system. You know, there are only a couple of countries now where these systems at the operator level interoperate. So I think a really critical aspect, again, not quite as relevant for Kenya right now, hopefully more so in the future, but is that if you start working across a platform like this, you get this built-in, you know, interoperability. So you not only get this room to design more and better products, make the connections that you're talking about, but it's uh, you're not going in dictating that, okay, everybody that gets this particular social protection payment needs to dump Tigo and pick up Vodacom because that's who we're using, right? Which, in particular, government um, and donors are very averse to doing that. You know, our job is not to pick winners. Our job is to help create the conditions by where the market gets healthier and you have these, uh, you have well, payment providers, you have these third-party service providers that are starting to smooth out a lot. Um, mm. I can keep talking forever, but <laughs> I'll I mean, stop. I don't know what your format is. Yeah, well, so, I mean, I could sit and ask you questions for a long time. Already. Yeah. Um, one that I have for you, though, Kay, is that what I see looking at this is that um, we talked about motivation earlier. Yeah. Um, there isn't really the motivation for some of these what we call frontier mobile network operators to really provide a better service. They're not at a point where they need right. their value-added services to, to carry the load of producing year-on-year growth because the markets are still growing. Right. There are more consumers signing up these services every year, they're spending more money, and it just happens organically. Right. Whereas here in the US, we're seeing aggressive competition, new entrants to the market, really pushing and changing business models of the other mobile network operators. At what point do you think we're going to start seeing a bit more attention to service, these kinds of things, and this kind of business to customer service coming out? They just don't need to do it at the moment. And, and is there any kind of work going on at the international level to try and suggest to provide other avenues for that pressure to exist? Yeah, I mean, competition, I think, is going to be very key, but that becomes difficult in smaller markets. You know, yeah. this said, uh, payments are a, a volume business, and so when you start, right now, we're very focused on rebuilding the digital, not rebuilding, building digital financial infrastructure as part of the Ebola recovery. But, you know, you start to look at the business case in some of these countries. Liberia only has, you know, a little over a million, actually, adult you know, potential consumers. And so you start thinking, okay, with an addressable market that small, then how do you start to think through the economics of the whole sector? 
and what is the role of the public sector and um, and the international partners, whether it's the the development finance banks or um, the multilaterals or bilateral donors, such as myself. What what is the what is our role in helping you know build up the back end infrastructure and then work on the policy, the regulatory framework, and the governance of the financial services sectors so that you're getting those back-end transactions to be as efficient, as cost-efficient, and effective as possible. And then you have providers actually having to compete and able to compete, more providers able to compete for customers at the service level. And I really think that's critical to it right now because you know, this lack of competition, I think we're sort of stuck in this mindset in many places that this can only be mobile money operators or possibly banks, you know, the, one of the bigger banks. like X. And in some ways, effectively, that's true because the barriers to enter this market are so high if you don't have fair access to mobile channels, right, which is still the case in a lot of markets. And so I think you mentioned earlier, you know, this conversation about global standards and market-level standards of access to the infrastructure. And then public financing, what is the role of how much public support goes into that? And, you know, some of this is um, is part of just the caught up in the larger policy dialogue, really, about development, um, sustainable development. There also, I think, give people that are really, um, that are really, you know, passionate about financial inclusion, I think a lot of hope because they are literally riddled with financial inclusion as a prerequisite for meeting so many of the other goals. But I think we are starting to see a shift in the conversation. Um, the World Bank last year declared a target of universal financial access by 2020, which is incredibly aggressive. Um, you know, and, and even the way that they define that by saying transaction accounts really widens the aperture of who is able, who is sort of blessed by the international development finance community of who can play in this space. And so I think really being much more deliberate about how we message, how we organize our own investments is going to be what it takes to get real competition and a real focus on the last mile. And I think an understanding, too, of the opportunity costs. Um, a colleague and I have a have a piece coming out um, in September in an MIT journal exactly on this, the, the opportunity cost of not having digital financial transaction platforms and digital payment rails in place and what that cost, you know, the, the impact of exclusion, the inability of governments in particular, because we're very government-centric, but to be able to respond to crises or to be able to use um, social protection payments or, or different ways of, of um, tackling poverty alleviation. So um, I do think it's going to be both of those. Well, so we have a panel that um, can really answer your questions on every level that comes up here, so, uh, from the technical to, um, to the, the real nitty-gritty of how it's on the ground um, and, and also the, the high level, the policy level, which is, I think, increasingly important. This whole conversation the last 20 minutes so really surprised me in the sense that it sounds like there are no bulk payment providers for mobile money. And I'm shocked that that's, I mean, I just looked online and Visa has one. Apparently it's crap. But uh, in that sense, I'm really surprised that there's only one in Kenya and none in all these other countries. Excuse my ignorance, but I'm just really surprised that there aren't already a handful of at least bulk payment providers. If it's not the MNO, an MNO blessed organization. Oh yeah, is it true? Is it, are we really looking at a huge gap? So um, 
bulk payment providers are to payments what spam is to email. So there, there are a lot of bulk payment providers, and like getting bulk payment spammed is way better than getting bulk email spammed. <laughs> no question. Right? Totally. I can't wait. I think they're called lotteries. But the, the point is that what actually happens is that, and this is actually to what Kay was saying, access to market at the bulk payment provider level is mostly for very large organizations with blast payment needs. So if your payroll is not 50,000 people, then your need for a bulk payment provider both isn't there and the economics of it don't really make sense. So two, like two-way payments are how most of most businesses are run where you take money for transactions and pay money out via payroll and being able to configure them to the use cases of small and medium-sized enterprises, which occupy the vast majority of the markets we're talking about, is the tool set niche that we're talking about. So going in and going through all of the opportunity costs I'm in awe and admiration of not only that you've negotiated with one provider, but you've gone to four major institutions. That's great. Um, it, you know, doing those negotiations is just not something that is functional or meets return on investment. There are a lot of organizations, I think Bayonic does this in Uganda, like there are a lot of organizations who are just trying to build the pipe, right? Copo Copo before M-Pesa tried to, you know, they released an M-Pesa API, I think a month ago or two months ago. So as Kay said, you know, there is this rush to building the pipeline, but bulk access and bulk providers aren't really where the infrastructure meets the market. And so I think a lot of the value-added service providers, a lot of what we're aiming at is how do you take what is hopefully an increasing amount of access to payments infrastructure and channel it into two-way, practically accessible and transactional payment systems that actually mirror or get close to the types of interactions that people are having using local money in market. ADP, I, Yeah, to my knowledge, they're not the only payments providers in their markets, though. Like, like they are big businesses, no question, but we're not all going to end up patronizing one business. And so I think that what we're looking for, like what we're looking at, is the market segmenting out, and you're seeing the ADPs and the paychecks and the visas of the world, you know, occupy their parts of the market for big commercial providers, but you're also seeing that to get last mile access, to get small and medium-sized customers and transactions, you, you have a lot of different varieties of needs that those that those providers are just not going to hit. Hi, I'm Rose, and thanks for this. This is hugely informative. Um, how do you guys imagine what you've worked on um, having relevance in, say, emergency or quickly shifting situations where you might have displaced populations or um, parts of infrastructure that aren't stable? Um, <laughs> well, I... I mean, that's, yeah, that's a huge challenge. Um, I think one of the, the key things is, is that these kind of systems need to be set up before any sort of a disaster strikes. Mola um, crisis would have, it would have been a lot better had there been uh, a well-functioning, multi widely used, um, and so it would have been very difficult at that point to start convincing people to start using mobile money so that they can, you know, not have to go to a bank that's closed out or whatever. But I think actually this also comes into play where um, in a difficult context, maybe mobile money isn't the right answer. I, I may have understood your, your question differently, but in, in terms of getting set up quickly to be able to, to address the needs of those hit in, whether it's disaster. Okay. You could hit it either way. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a kind of pretty broad topic, so you've got... Latitude. <laughs> well, yeah, I think we've seen examples where mobile money was actually used to disperse emergency funds. 
the infrastructure to get them up and running, maybe a little bit, uh, you know, it's not your brick and mortar necessarily, it's, it's, it's small, it's, it's the last mile agent. Again, the challenge is making sure that that agent infrastructure is there. So I, I think that you can probably get up more quickly if it's there and have access and, and the loss to, to uh, an entire branch may be bigger, but the loss to the, the small local money agents along the way if your infrastructure is there may be something they can recover more easily and provide service for you. USA is very focused on this question right now. Uh, in fact, uh, the Global Development Lab where I work, we're collaborating very closely with the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance and Food for Peace, which are the parts of USAID that disperse um, humanitarian response emergency assistance. And I think all these points um, are exactly right. It's really tough to try to build mobile payment systems in the wake of a crisis, right? Very difficult. Mm -hmm. And so preparedness ultimately is the key. But of course, you know, I, I think that there are creative steps that people can and they're starting to think about in the interim. What you're really starting to see is the proliferation of a number of providers of digital payment systems that are dropped into emergency system or emergency settings, right? And they're closed loop systems and they are designed um, so that some mix of usually either cash or commodities um, can be dispersed. Um, you know, two beneficiaries, and then the company also takes it upon themselves to help sort of build the, the merchant and agent network to make that all work. The problem with that is it's kind of outside of the, of the real financial services, right? And so all of that effort that goes into registering people, um, you know, getting their identity and getting agent networks and merchant networks set up, when the system you know, when the emergency response is over, those get packed up and picked up and you've lost a huge amount of work. So I think where we're really trying to focus is if, okay, we know that the long-term play is building out these rails, right? And especially doing those in places where we know, you know, there, there are floods every year in Western Pakistan, as it turns out, right? So let's, <laughs> let's think about this and not be surprised each time. Uh, that, that's a long-term prospect. But so how do you be smart about making sure that the, the short-term impacts of getting assistance digitally to people does leave something behind that ultimately contributes to the lasting financial infrastructure of a country and helps best people in financial inclusion? Because you're often kind of surfacing people whose identity you're confirming, right, even though they may not have the required documents that it takes to open a bank account, right? And so how do you how do you take that body of knowledge and still respect privacy and humanitarian principles, but somehow figure out smart ways to plug those in to and make them available later to providers, right? And same thing with merchant networks, those sorts of things. So if you have any great ideas, we're working on this right now. In getting ready for emergencies like this, uh, what is involved in holding meetings online and getting the various providers to get an economic consensus of what they're going to do so the system works? Yeah, I mean, so where we've seen this be most successful in an emergency setting so far is actually the Philippines um, after Typhoon Hainan. And in part, it was because um, several of the major INGOs that then helped provide relief were already using um, digital payments. And so they had relationships 
with existing licensed providers that they were able to build upon. In that context, um, actually the coordination that was provided by um, OCHA provides a cash coordinator now in most humanitarian response, and they tend their actual mandate, what they do, and the level of authority they have, from what I've seen over the last few years, tends to sort of vary wildly um, from you know country to country and emergency to emergency. I know what we're trying to do from our perch um, of being the people that help write the policy and channel U.S. government um, assistance through the multilateral relief agencies is to help shape that environment so that that role is much more prominent, right? And also, again, you know, as, as I was just discussing, we're really looking into are there a set of protocols when there is a, a disaster? whereby people kind of pre-agree to follow certain principles so that without impeding the delivery of aid, which is incredibly urgent and should be done however it can most effectively reach people in their time of need, but to the extent possible, how do you have um, relief organizations dispersing aid in a way that makes a lasting contribution? both to personally vesting people that have been excluded from the financial services sector with financial inclusion, but also in, in building that lasting infrastructure. And it's important to say that digital cash in emergencies doesn't have to be mobile money either. It's often um, using a group vendor network to have like accounts, special cards, swipe, or um, bank accounts, or there are other options. Right. So, and sometimes it's mobile, but not actually mobile money as SMS vouchers and things like that. So. Right. That was a great point. I think uh, with regards to the Philippines, prior to that, we spent a number of years encouraging um, savings accounts in, in the rural areas. And it felt, uh, we heard the stories where, where people, of course, benefited from having the, the savings account after they right. got disaster, but it really felt like a missed opportunity to build the infrastructure at that point in time when, when the need was great that the they, the benefits were so evident, right? Right, and it, it just felt like a, a missed opportunity. <clears throat> really quickly, too, from from my perspective, a lot of what we see is that mobile money or how do you build it so that you have a digital payment system is a head fake because it's in fact not the hard part of the problem at all. Uh, they touched on identity and how you verify identity and how you then use that I, that defined identity as the basis for further benefits, and it's like take a look at the refugee crisis that's happening now and just getting consensus around who is a refugee, around what set of benefits that entitles them to, where they should be able to travel. And those are, in a lot of ways, the very difficult, very drawn-out negotiations and processes. The, the process of digitally administering them, I mean, certainly having, having registered accounts would make a lot of that easier and certainly you want anything that's invested in to be building momentum toward a, a more resilient and, and more long-lasting digital infrastructure. But all of the, you know, so many of the basically roadblocks have very little to do with mobile payment. And if, the, if your question is, are we building, you know, are we giving out coupons and barcodes? Are we sending people text messages with unique codes? Are we actually sending mobile money into their, you know, into their savings account or into their mobile wallet? Like ultimately, all three of those things are by and large solve technical problems. It's just getting the informational requirements and building the contractual relationships to make them operationally. Um, so I'm interested, this is something I heard about a lot more in the early months of the program, but have either of you experienced issues with, and just to take it right back to the rural system, uh, liquidity at the local level. So we hear that sometimes we're just come into the town, everybody goes straight to the agent and cleans them out. 
then the agent is really solvent and you know, lots of local business and to offer more money. So there's not a lot of liquidity at the local level. Can either of you comment on, on how that's been the last year? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, interestingly, people always bring up liquidity as an issue, um, and it's it's one of the main reasons cited for um, if there's any sort of resistance um, that the organization is going to say, well, but the, our customers don't want to use this because they, you know, there, there's going to be issues. They're not going to be able to get the money out. Um, and that does definitely happen, and it really depends on the region uh, in question. But I think it's a lot more common, and it makes sense that it's a lot more common in areas where there's a mass campaign, where it's like, um, all teacher payments are going out on the same day of the same month. Or, um, so that is definitely an issue. On a day-to-day -day basis, I think oftentimes we're talking about just a couple hundred shillings, um, and that I don't see as being a huge issue. That said, in Nairobi, I've had many times where the agent doesn't have flow. It's an issue, flash. Maybe it's not as big of an issue as we make it seem. Um, and, and the answer about the, the agent, uh, the answer that the agent gives to the customer isn't necessarily always accurate, right? Because sure. they may be withholding um, some funds for other funds that they know that are coming, or the, or the amount that the individual wants may not be profitable for them. So uh, there, there's so many layers to, to that, I think, in terms of getting to the root of that, that uh, problem. One of the things that we encountered is essentially, particularly out in the rural um, areas, that these are folks that know each other and somehow have a way of communicating and, and not the most efficient way, right? Because we're trying to discourage and, and try to make it a little bit more automated, but you know, they'll ask, they'll call, hey, can I, uh, can I do this or text? Uh, so there's that informal way of, of managing that, that we've noticed uh, as, as far as a widespread problem. I'm not, not so sure. Um, so anyone else got any closing? I'd like to invite the panel to offer us a closing thought, um, despite the low blood sugar that you're no doubt experiencing. Um, and I mean, we've heard a lot about progress. There's definitely a lot going on. It, it's such a new field, and sometimes I think you know when you get, when you say, "Okay, so much better five years ago," we must be patient and we must think some of the stuff we're talking about. Uh, the high-touch needs of some of the large-scale organisations that we work with will organically go over time. Just as you know, 20 years ago, we might have worried about how some organisations started using email um, here in the United States. Um, so I think there is some of that. I guess what, what I'm interested in is how we, as very different types of actors, can come together and work together to solve some of these intractable problems around the marketplace. And, um, if if I offer you to, um, a chance to sort of close with whatever closing thought you'd like. But one thing that would be great to hear is what do you think we can collectively do as a community to to keep pushing forward on this? And I think critically also to keep in mind that not everyone yet can access digital cash and that pe the people who aren't are disproportionately likely to be among the most vulnerable. And how how do we really do them justice, not why the digital divide still further? What can we as a community do to keep pushing forward with this? Being a technology provider, I assume that that means the least significant answer. Uh, I think that the biggest problems, the biggest challenge is that we see progress as the win when it's the equality of progress that is, is what changes the development outcome. And so building systems that are not just for 
super high revenue international commercial conglomerates, but giving equal weight to the very high touch cultural and distribution and customization efforts that go into building you know, systems that are open loop as opposed to closed loop, that are not proprietary and extracted and super high margin, investing in infrastructure that is built to have multiple service providers and, and tailor to locally existing markets. I think that there is, you know, it's, you asked, the, you asked the question earlier about how it scales, and I think that there will be parts of it that, that will scale beautifully, and there will be parts of it that will never scale. And I think that, you know, it's, it's just as important if we, if we look at digital cash as a development problem and not just a market problem, that we invest disproportionately, which is to say more than, than in urban areas, in rural areas and last mile communities, and, and building the digital infrastructure or realizing the digital infrastructure that crosses the urban to rural divide and, and all of the high touch work that that involves. To me, that that's, you know, <clears throat> we, we look at big cities in emerging economies as development, you know, as opportunities for development, and they are, but they are not nearly the opportunity for development that the areas that are outside of the urban areas are. And so I think that investing in solutions that really do bridge that divide is, is where we'll make the most progress and where we'll see the most value. Uh, I would also say that a lot of a lot of the barriers that we've come across are somewhat easily solvable if you're able to put in the human interaction there. Um, and I, I guess it's it's almost like it's a little bit frustrating that they are such um, barriers. Things like an MPSA agent treating someone really poorly or um, Safaricom making processes way more difficult than they need to be, or not having training centers out in rural areas. Um, things that easily discourage vulnerable populations, I think those are some of the types of things that can improve quite quickly. Um, and also just greater transparency in, in the processes and in, in exactly what um, you know transaction levels Something just came out a couple of years ago about Lupin on Pesa, having kind of these hidden transaction costs. And those are the types of um, stories that people then raise their hand and say, well, we don't trust the system. Um, we're not going to use this. And it's those types of things that make people discouraged for the next 10 years. Um, yeah, I think there's a, along those lines, I think there's a, there's a couple of things that we need to keep in mind. One is just to continue to be skeptical. When we look at numbers like the mobile phone penetration, number of SIM cards there are for, for a particular market, for, for a particular country, that really doesn't necessarily mean much when you get down into the rural areas and see how people use uh, use the tools and use what's, what's available to them because they may not really be available to them. They don't know how to use it. Until they do know how to use it, it's not really for them. And that would be the second piece, I think, that I, I would uh, want to encourage us to continue. Um, to, to continue exploring is just the idea that solutions uh, need to be based on the need. We need to continue asking the, our, our end users, the poor, what is it that you need? How do you need to do it? Walk, walk the journey with them in terms of something that they now have a tool that is usable and they will use and, and, and take up. It's, it's a little bit frustrating to hear some of the, some of the discussions and some of the, the dialogue that sort of assumes that we're now, you know, kind of a digital, um, we're, we're a digital economy, digital environment, and so on. We would love for us to get there, um, but there's a lot of work between now and then. Okay, do you like to close it out? Uh, sure. Um, so first, thank you very much for hosting us. It's a great topic. Um, 
also, I forgot to do a little plug, and um, USAID, with the help of one of our partners, NetHope, put out something called the Electronic Payments Toolkit about a year ago. We released this just as we were changing our procurement policy as an agency to make the use of inclusive electronic payments the default um, for our grantees and contractors in markets where that's viable. Um, so I'm happy, maybe Laura can send the URL to you and yeah. you can send it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, great. So yeah, I think it's really relevant to these discussions yeah. that are trying to figure out the business process change, you know, and how do you start to adapt. And the Better Than Cash Alliance has a set of great toolkits out as well. Um, so, I mean, just in closing, you know, I, you, um, one small edit, you, you mentioned that we need to be patient. And I actually think the opposite. I think we need to be very impatient. And it's exactly organizations um, like what you're trying to do now, pushing the envelope and calling attention to the need for better um, design of these products, better service delivery. I think you need many, many, many more value-added service providers and third-party providers coming in and disrupting the incumbent. And I think in some ways this would be a different conversation if we were talking about another market. Kenya is a very unusual market because it is a monopoly provider. 